Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for Invested, our podcast about being mindful. And being invested. <laughs> mindful about mindful investing. Mindful about investing. Exactly. And we're talking about rule one style investing here, which was developed by Warren Buffett and which I've been doing for about 30 years. And Danielle- 30 years? Yeah, it's a long time, huh? Gosh, you're kind of old. I know, you're old and gray. <laughs> and Danielle is a, an attorney that does emerging corporation law and has been my daughter for her whole life. Well, that is true. Mm. Good point. So I feel like that gives me unique capabilities <laughs> to ask you a lot of questions. But the capabilities about don't want investing. The and the whole point of this podcast is that that Danielle's capabilities, which are legend. Oh yeah, they're legend. Well, you certainly are a legend when it comes to going to school. That's for sure. Yeah, I've gone to a lot of school, but I don't think people really care about that. No, they don't. I think that what they're interested in is this rule one style investing and how we can make it work for people like me, which is people who aren't really naturally interested, but know we have to learn about it. So how do we make that work for us to the point where it's even like something good in our lives and something that really adds to it? That's so, what I'm looking for. So this is the thing, like you're really smart. You have gone to the best schools around the world, I think, um, in my opinion, NYU Law, Oxford for a master's degree, um, Wellesley for an undergrad, Colorado for a master's degree in law, and yet you don't invest at all. And you've lived with me much of your whole life. Yeah, I mean, so I why, think... Why so why is this not interesting to you? It's, I don't, I'm not a numbers person. I don't like to look at charts. I don't like to watch people yell on CNBC. I don't, I don't wanna know about the numbers in the stock market. It's not interesting to me. And what's interesting to me are people, and um, I mean, I work, I work with companies all the time. I love talking to people about their companies. Um, but the stock market itself is very numbers-based, and that turns me off. And yet, you know you have to do this. Yeah. So we talked last time a ton about dharma and about mindful money and what mindfulness is all about. And I think that's something we're going to think about more, which is really exciting. And I think to me, there's a lot of those concepts in, um, in what's going to make this interesting mm -hmm. and, it, and it, in what is making it interesting currently. Well, each time in these podcasts, I'm going to do my very best to bring out one aspect of investing. And hopefully you'll get excited about it and, and connect with it. And I don't know which one of these things is going to connect in, but I know something will. And, and we've been doing this for a while. Yeah. And there are pieces that are connecting. Yeah, I think there are. And um, I think coming up, we'll do a series on, you know, what are people doing now regarding investing? What am I doing now? What are my friends doing now? What are our options? People ask me all the time how they should choose a financial advisor. I think we should talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. People I think that's ask a me really about exchange traded funds. We should talk about that. You know, it, I, we've spent a lot of time talking about choosing our own companies, which I think is awesome because that's interesting to me. Um, but I think we should talk about what people are doing now and whether or not you think they work or don't work so well. Yeah, I think that'd be good. Let's 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 come back to something we promised to talk. Yeah, about. Yeah. So we though. promised to talk about dividends and finish the dividend conversation. Um, podcast before last 
And then we got excited about the idea of <laughs> mindful money. <We> drifted. <laughs> and I think when we were talking about dividends, we were, first off, let me just kind of summarize dividends, right? Well, why don't you summarize dividends? You remember what we've discussed about it? Not that well, to be honest. Okay. So I know what dividends are. What are they? They are a payment out of free cash flow to holders of that stock. Okay. Very, very right on. And um, at least that's the theory. That's the theory? Yes. That's not the truth? It often is not the truth. And Why? companies Why use the truth? Companies use dividends to pretend that they're better than they are. And so while dividends should be paid to the owners out of free cash flow, and if you owned the entire business, you would certainly uh, be taking the free cash flow from the business, if you owned it and it was private, you would just take the free cash flow from the business, or what we would call owner's cash flow, which we discussed last time, is a little different than free cash flow. Free cash flow is the money you have, the cash you have left after you pay um, off all of your cash requirements, including growing the business. And owner's cash flow is everything you have left after that. Hmm. So free, Free cash flow is sorry. Free cash flow is what's available after you um, after you have your operating cash, and then you pay off the requirements to grow the business. Let me state it like that. And then owner's cash flow is the operating cash minus the requirements to grow the business and keep the business going. And that's what you have left, if anything, and that's owner's cash flow. And if you were the owner of the business, meaning that's like the take-home pay of the owner. Yeah, that's if they the, took everything good. out. That's the owner's take-home pay. Okay. Yeah. And so, for example, if you're Warren Buffett and you have 60 private companies, you will probably instruct all of your managers to manage the company, only use the cash necessary to grow the business at a steady rate, which you project as the CEO of that company. Okay, we're going to grow at 10% a year, and this is the cash I need to do that, right? To advertise, to build new stores, whatever. And then Buffett would then say, and then send me everything else. Yeah. And then he'll go invest that. Yeah. All right. So that's that stuff that they're sending to Buffett. That's owner cash flow. And where do the dividends come out of? Out of owner cash flow. Out of owner cash flow. Uh, theoretically, they come out of owner cash flow. Okay. But now, because as stockholders, we are owners. As stockholders, we are owners. At least theoretically, we are owners. Although a lot of well, companies, not I mean, we technically are. We are. Oh well, you're right. It's not theoretically. It's in fact we are. Yeah. But often. Public companies don't treat the shareholders as if they are owners. They just treat them as if they are suckers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's owners or it's being an owner without any control of any kind over the business. Exactly, including what they're doing with owner's cash flow. Right. So a good company will be paying dividends out of owner cash flow and not be paying dividends when there isn't any owner cash flow. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But what happens is companies lock, they want to lock in uh, the price of their stock. And so they want to produce a cash flow for people called a dividend that gets people locked in that won't get rid of the stock because they want that dividend. And so if a company is struggling and they don't have any owner cash flow, but they have this large audience of people who expect to get this dividend of, let's say, 3% a year or 4% a year, they're expecting that dividend and there's no owner cash flow to pay it. What would you do as the guys who are running the company and don't want to get fired? Find a way to pay it. Yeah, you'd find a way to pay it. 
And so the way you'd find to pay it is you could either cut back on your money you're spending on growth, you could cut back temporarily on money that you need to spend to build new plants and just run the old ones for longer than you would plan, or you could borrow money. Or you could just take money out of equity of the company that's sitting in cash that you haven't used for anything, it's kind of a big pile of cash, and you could pay it out of that. So there's, there's ways besides just owner cash flow that you could pay dividends. And the, the, you know, the problem with that is it's kind of a temptation for kind of evil management, management that's immoral or unethical, to continue paying a dividend even though they don't have any owner cash flow. They're not going to have any owner cash flow. They're running the company into the dirt. But they don't want all those older people who are depending on that dividend to worry. Well, because if those people start to worry, then it gets into the financial press and then Ex everyone starts selling. Right? Everyone starts selling and then they get fired. And so, you know, devious little guys that they are, they just borrow the money. And General Motors is like one of the biggest culprits of this. I think I yeah, pointed so that out. Yeah, so what did they do? They, they, they were running out of money. They were getting smoked in their whole market, right? Toyota was handing them their butt. And they didn't have owner cash flow, and they really couldn't even keep up the plants as well as they needed to. But they just kept paying that big dividend that they'd been and paying for 50 years. And they kept it at the same years. level that they had kept it at the same level same as percentage. long as they possibly could until they had borrowed so stupid much money that they eventually went bankrupt. So, as somebody, let's say I owned General Motors back then, and I wanted to find out, you know, how on earth they were paying my dividend. I could see in their financial statements that they're borrowing a ton of money, right? Absolutely. In fact, if you look at rule, the, the book Rule Number One, yeah. I spell it out there and I show you the financial statements. But you could look at, at uh, well, you could have looked at GM's financial statements, but now they, they're gone. <laughs> they're no longer on the web because GM got taken into bankruptcy. So, or a sort of bankruptcy. And... Um, and so now we can't really look back on it. But if companies are borrowing money, you really have to pay attention to whether or not they're being evil. You really have to be careful. I'll give you, I'll give you one to look at right now. IBM is, is apparently borrowing money. And, well, they're definitely borrowing money. And they're paying large dividends. So you have to look and you have to see what is the operating cash flow which is on the cash flow statement, the big bold line that says operating cash flow. And then you subtract the purchase of property and equipment, which is another line on the cash flow. And what you have left is free cash flow. And um, or I, what you have left is actually owner cash flow. And that's available to pay dividends, to buy back stocks with, stock with, to buy companies with, whatever they want to use it for. So they just keep it in cash if they want, right? They could, which Isn't last time we talked doing? about Apple yeah. did, and Carl Icahn came in and said, ah, you know, I want some of that, mm -hmm. right? So dividends are, are something that, in general, um, are very important to a large class of investors who are living on dividends. And so I think maybe what you're saying is just because a company isn't or sorry, just because a company is borrowing a lot of money doesn't automatically mean they're paying the dividends out of that borrowed money right. in order to hide um, a lack of cash flow. Right. It's not necessarily the so case. So we need to figure out how they're using that borrowed money. 
Right. Yeah, and the main thing is just do they have enough owner's cash flow to be paying a dividend? Okay. Just take a look at it and okay. see if it's see if it makes sense or if they're paying out twice as much dividend as they have in owner cash flow. Um, and then again, you got to cut us. You you really have to understand the business a little bit in order to know that they're borrowing money right now because they are financing computers, which is what Apple, uh, which IBM. is what IBM does, or John Deere Tractor. So they have what looks like a lot of debt, but it isn't really because it's all secured by tractors and computers. So just you just got to pay a little bit of attention. If that's hard, if that feels hard, you don't do those companies. You just yeah. don't bother with them. Yeah, you stick don't to understand burrito that one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> stick, stick to what's the hot jeans manufacturer, you know? I mean, we all have areas of the market which we just get, you know? We just understand them. And um, and so when it comes to looking at dividends, we got to always go back to the basics that Charlie talked about, Charlie Munger, which is be sure you're capable of understanding the business and that it has intrinsic characteristics that continue to allow it to compete well. because. It's that ability to continue to compete well that provides it with the cash flow that it can use to pay dividends. Hmm. So I think last time we ended, um, you said something about how people got through the depression on their dividends, which totally shocked me because I just assumed that if the market is going down and a company's stock price craters, that means the company isn't doing very well and doesn't have much extra cash and probably can't pay their dividends anymore. Yeah, so it's really important to separate um, stock market price and um, and what the company has in terms of its financial statements and its cash flow. All of that is, uh, those are two different things. They can be, they intersect where a company has um, a value in the market and uses that value in the market to buy other companies, to uh, get loans against its stock. Um, it's part of the capital structure of the company. But you know, you, you, you can see it really clearly that if the company was private and there was no stock market, it could still be a very functional company. It wouldn't need to have somebody bidding a price for their stock every day in order to still be a good company. So let's let's take a second and just look at what happened prior to the depression because I think it's we're we're coming into a very rocky potential market here a potential really rocky stock market um, very scary market for a lot of people who are buy and hold investors. Are we really? Yeah, I think we really oh, are. That's the first time you've mentioned that. Yeah, I haven't really been real market specific because I don't I don't really focus on the stock market per se. You know, we all we don't really care. You mean like the current state of yeah, it's a market uh, high, things affecting is it low? the market going up and down yeah. generally? But in general, it's important to but understand you, that there are things that help you evaluate whether this is a great time to be buying stocks or not. Totally. Yeah. And we can talk about those at length, but we won't get into those right now. But let me just say that that this market is is rocky right now. It's, it's shaky. Um, and it's shaky for a very, very good reason. The, the, the central bank's around the world and specifically in the United States have become very deeply involved in the stock market. So the stock market is no longer um, simply a mass of thousands and thousands of people who are voting with their money for something or voting against it. Now the stock market is being manipulated by central banks, the Federal Reserve in the United States, for example. Whoa, wait, how... 
Tell me more. <laughs> well, this is a long way from dividends, yeah, this is going but it is, away it is from important. the history of the depression. And we should we should dive into that a bit uh, a bit more at maybe another time. But just in brief, um, the stock market values in the market are thought to be related to um, the interest rates on safe investments. Oh, okay. So if you have an interest rate on what's considered a really safe investment, and and that would be a, a let's say a two or three year treasury note would be considered a very safe investment. That's lending your money to the federal government and they're guaranteeing you they'll pay it back. And since they have a printing press, they're quite likely to be able to do that. Yeah. They can simply <laughs> print the money and pay you back. So they can. we consider that the safest investment. So if the interest rate on, let's say, let's just go to a 10 year T-bill because a lot of people are aware of the interest rates on 10 years. Um, let's say the interest rate on a 10-year T-bill is in the ballpark of what it's been on average for a lot of the time for the last 40 or 50 years, and something like 4 or 5% per year. All right, So that would be considered a, a risk-free rate. And in order to make it sensible to put your money into a stock which has risk instead of a T-bill which doesn't, you need to make more than 5% a year. Did you just say that you can make 5% with no risk? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, that is sort of historically what you could do on a 10-year T-bill. That seems like a lot. Well, compared to I mean, today's interest rates, you put your money rates, in a is. savings account and you make like 0.02%. I get like 13 cents a year, you know? Yeah. Well, you'd, you'd get about that from a T-bill these days, too. <laughs> You're not going to get 5%. Because, because the, interest rates are really low right now. Because interest rates are being manipulated by the federal government. They're no longer... Okay, so the 5% is not real. That's just... Like, no. The 5% was real, let's say, 30 years ago. Okay. Okay. But today you can't get that because the central bank has intervened in the market and has simply decided that they would keep interest rates very, very low. And they've kept interest rates very, very low for like eight or nine years now. And so this is a manipulation because if the market were just supply and demand for money, then interest rates would probably be on a 10-year T-bill in the range of 4 to 5%. And that means something to the stock market. It means you have to do better than 4 or 5% in a stock, or think you will, or it would make absolutely no sense to put your money in the stock market. You just put your that's money really, in a T-bill. That's really, really interesting. I didn't know that about T-bills. So, well, you know what a T bill is right now. I mean, I'm literally thinking like, should I put my money in a T bill? <laughs> because well, that sounds pretty damn good. But you can't. But they're not paying five percent right no, now. No, they're paying two percent right so now. So does that alter my um, calculation on sort of like what what is a good return in the stock market? Like maybe my maybe a good return in the stock market right now is lower than it would be if I could buy a T-bill for 5%. It is exactly, you've got it. That's exactly right. A lot of people look at that and say, well, if I can only make 2% on a 10-year T-bill, then investing in the stock market and making more than 2% would be good. Okay. Rather than more than 5%. I so, mean, maybe I should just buy a T-bill. That sounds pretty good. Well, when you, when you, when you, if you could. So I don't have to watch anything. I don't have to learn anything. If you could. <laughs> So think about this. What do you mean if I could? Well, Why you can't, can't I buy one. You can't buy a T bill and get five percent. Oh right, right. No, I can buy like a crappy one and get what are they paying now? Two percent, two and a half or something. Yeah, two. So think about what happens in people's mind when um, when T bill rates are down at two percent. They think exactly like what you just said. 
maybe I better put my money in the stock market because 2% isn't enough. But if you'd raise it to 5%, maybe I'll take my money out of the stock market and put it into the 5%er. That seems extremely logical to me. It is. And so if you take your money out of the stock market, you and a million people just like you, then what direction does the stock market go when you raise interest rates? Down. Down like a brick. Oh, Dad, you're so logical. <laughs> so <laughs> and interesting. The, and the market is very nervous right now that Janet Yellen is going like to I'm raise interest rates. I feel like I'm Econ 101, and I'm like, oh, that's how it works? <laughs> That's how it works. So if interest rates are going to be rising, then the stock market's going to be potentially falling, particularly okay. if it's overpriced right now. And there's a lot of indicators that it is. And so if you, even if you said the market is correctly priced right now, but you knew that Janet Yellen is raising interest rates at the Fed, then you would be nervous that the market, potential growth of the market's being offset by the rising interest rates and people are gonna start taking their money out particularly baby boomers. Because they're retiring? Because they're retiring and they no longer want market risk. Market risk is that is that risk that you get with money in the stock market that the market will drop as it did, let's say in 2000, as it did in 2007 and eight. It'll drop and it might take eight or 10 years as yeah. it did to come back up. Well, that's exactly what I said when we were talking about risk a couple of episodes ago and you were telling me that the volatility of a stock is not the same as its risk, but I think it it kind of, maybe maybe we talked about risk in two different ways, but I think if you have to sell at a certain point in time, it is risky to have a volatile stock. Sure. And that's that's why people are taking their money out of the market if they need that money. Are they afraid, the they're afraid they years. might, yeah. Whereas if, if I'm investing and I'm younger and I can ride it out for the next 30 years, it doesn't really matter to me that there's volatility. Yeah, but let's compare apples to apples. If we're talking about a 10-year T-bill, yeah, you have yeah. the same exact issue. Good point, good point. I mean, both investments are very liquid. You can sell them easily. And both of them will, you know, getting your money back isn't necessarily a given thing on a 10-year T-bill if you decide to sell it three years into the ownership of the T-bill. Because if interest rates, for example, right now are at 2% and Janet Yellen starts raising interest rates and... Let's say you put $100,000 into a 2% T-bill, you're getting $2,000 a year. And then Janet Yellen raises the rates to 4%, which would be completely normal. I All can right? sell a 10-year T-bill before the end of 10 years? Sure, they're completely liquid. You can sell them just like a stock. Then why is there even a term on them at all? Well, the term is the amount of time that they're going to guarantee that they'll pay you that 2%. Oh, okay. So you're going to get it every single year for the next 10 years, guaranteed, and then you get all your money back. So okay, so let's have a quick T-bill primer. Okay. So I buy a T-bill today, and I'm going to get 2% for the next 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's right. not going to change based on interest rates going up or down. Nope, I'm you locked get it in. locked in. Okay. And so now you've just said, in three years from now, I can sell it if, or whatever, the day, tomorrow, I could sell it if I wanted to. Let's say three years. Okay. Because it would be entirely... But, but the point is, any time in those 10 years, you can technically sell it, right? Anytime you can sell it. Okay. Right. But you're going to sell it at a price that reflects the interest rate at the time you sell it, right. not the interest rate that when you bought it. Right. So right. let's say Janet Yellen, and, and this is completely plausible, she brings interest rates back up to their normal place, which would be a 10-year T-bill at, let's say, 4%. Okay. Okay. And let's say three years from now, you decide to sell that T-bill because you need the money badly. Like a retiree, you needs the money. 
then if interest rates have gone to 4% and your $100,000 is generating $2,000 a year from the 2% interest, then you have to match the current rate of return of T-bills or no one will buy yours. Right. They'll just go buy a new T-bill. Yeah, why would anybody why would anybody buy a 2% T-bill? They won't when if it's interest at 4%. rates are at 4%. Right. So if you think about it, if somebody has uh, $50,000 to invest and they want to buy a T-bill and it's 4% interest rates, they're going to get $2,000 a year, which is what your T-bill gives you. So if they said, oh, I'll buy a new T-bill and get paid $2,000 a year on my 50,000, or I'll buy Danielle's T-bill and I'll get paid $2,000 a year on my 50,000. Either way, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Well, you might not be so fine. You paid 100,000 for that T-bill. And now it's when you sell it, it's 50 grand. Mm -hmm. So people don't realize that bond prices can move around that much. But the fact is, we are in a really unusual time for bonds right now. Um, there's never been a time in history where the federal government has intervened in the bond market like this. A T-bill is a bond. A T-bill is a bond, yeah. A T-bill, T-bond, they just sort of say them interchangeably. And what they mean is a U.S. government uh, guarantee. Okay. And the possibilities are just sitting there looking us right in the face that if this economy gets normal, they're going to let the interest rates rise to a normal place, which means anybody that buys a long-term T-bill or T-bond is going to see the value of that get chopped dramatically. So right now, the only way you should be buying a long bond is if you have every intention to not touch it. And that way you'll get your 100,000 back. If you have to touch it early, you might only get 50 back. Got it. Or I guess if you think interest rates are going to go down, but I can't imagine they're gonna go down from where we are. I know, you can't imagine that we'd go down from where we are. We're at 2% 10-year 10 10 T-bill. But to by comparison, Germany's 10-year T-bill is at 0.8. Whoa. And Japan's 10-year T-bill is at 0.8. Wow. I know. And so in this world, 0.8 10-year T-bills are common. And if you think about how crazy this gets, Japan's budget requires that they spend half of their national budget on interest rates on their 10-year T-bill, which are 0.8. If interest rates went to 1.6, it would chew up the entire budget of the Japanese people, and they wouldn't have any money for anything in their government. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so that's how they are... I mean, they've been pulling themselves—they've ah, been pulling themselves out of that recession for a very long time now. This by borrowing how, this money, is how they're doing it. by borrowing money from the Japanese people, who put these ten-year T bills into their retirement and sit on them. If it wasn't for the fact that the Japanese people are massive savers, Japan would be in really serious trouble. If it, if it had lent the money, if it had borrowed the money, say from China or from America, whole different deal, right? But it kind of owes it to itself. So they have a lower risk that those people are going to come in and demand it, you know. So um, the world is a place where interest rates can indeed go down when no one would expect them to. And if, for example, the world goes into a recession, which is a very good possibility right now, that the world's sliding into a recession, being driven by deflation of commodity prices, which means that people are no longer buying as much iron ore or copper or oil 
right, or they're not buying it at the same price, oil prices are dropping like a brick, then what happens to the companies that produce all of these commodities is they cut back on employees and they cut back on capital expenditures, which means that places like Caterpillar Tractor, Joy Global, who make big machines for excavating mines, okay. those guys don't, they have to lay off employees because nobody wants to buy their machines. And if they lay off employees, then somebody in the steel business has to lay off employees. So this thing can kind of roll downhill really fast. And it is right now as a result of China cutting back on its development of infrastructure that it did for about 10 years prior to now. And as a result of that, we could see a worldwide recession, the United States go into recession, and the Federal Reserve take drastic action to keep employment high. All right, because remember, they've come down from 11% down to 5.1. They don't want to go back. So what could they do? They can go right back and drop interest rates even farther. They can take the 10-year T-bill down to 1% or down to a half percent by buying bonds like crazy from ourselves. Hmm. In other words, they're just printing money and pouring it into the economy and trying to take a short-term measure that will prevent uh, people from losing their jobs and throwing America into a huge recession. And I would say we're at least 50-50 probability of that exact thing happening over the next two or three years. In other words, interest rates absolutely could be cut in half, in which case your $100,000 T-bill just became a $200,000 T-bill. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting really depressed while you were saying all of this, but now I feel less depressed all of a sudden. I, yeah, I've got friends of mine who no, run so, hedge so, funds who are absolutely betting that T-bills are going down. Good Lord. <laughs> So we're about to go into a massive recession again, according to Phil Town. Potentially. 50-50. 50-50. And not just according to me. Carl Icahn just came out with a video on his website explaining why that's going to happen. All right. So apparently I can live through this recession on my dividends. <laughs> just like everybody else in the depression, right? Should I be buying, like, what are blue chip stocks now? Are at t does that still exist? Yeah, not exactly. Um, definitely <laughs> things have telephone. changed. <laughs> definitely things have changed. And so your question last time, or a couple times ago, a couple podcasts ago was, you know, if, if the market's going down like a brick and we're going into a recession, how in the world can these guys keep paying dividends? Yeah. Well, it, it so clearly... you saying the stock price doesn't actually correlate to, uh, to their... It doesn't necessarily free, doesn't correlate. It doesn't necessarily correlate. Right? Good point. And, and that's something we've been discussing right along from the beginning is that... Price modern and port, value Yes, are price separated. and value are separated. And that there, there comes times in the market where emotion is so high in terms of either greed or fear that price and value get separated on, on many companies. And really good companies, in this case, that we're talking about a potential recession, really, really good companies will see their stock prices going down nearly as fast as really, really bad companies. <laughs> because why? Because if interest rates go to 5%, everybody's getting out of the market and putting their money into a T-bill. It doesn't matter which stock, they're just getting out mm -hmm. completely. Mm -hmm. And baby boomers, as I alluded earlier, are now hitting retirement and are, don't want that market risk. And as soon as there's an indication that the market could get shaky again, you're gonna see them pull billions of dollars out of the market and move it into some form of annuity or bonds or something that they're gonna get a steady return on, hmm. right? So when the interest rates go down, by the way, the flip side of this is that the interest rates are driven down by the Federal Reserve. Part of what they're doing is driving the stock market up intentionally. 
the higher the market goes, the more people feel like they have money because they have money in their 401k, they've got money in IRAs. Um, businesses feel like they're doing well because their stock prices are going up. All of those things encourage people to spend and to feel like, oh, every, everything's good, it's all working out, I can go consume now. And you, you, you enter into a, a sort of virtuous cycle where hmm. you know, people are spending more because they feel like they've got more money and as a result, they do have more money. More people are being hired, more people are spending, more people are being hired, more people are spending. And so you there get this, again, the higher stock price doesn't necessarily correlate to the value of the company. And exa exactly it right. It works both ways, what? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And so as we entered these sort of markets where there, the Federal Reserve has intentionally driven people into the market, hmm. um, you can find as a result in, in a capitalistic system, people are free to do what they want, that they will continue to invest even though the market gets ridiculously overpriced because there's just nowhere else to put the money. And if you're listening to this and that sounds familiar, it's done by design by the Federal Reserve. They intentionally did that to you. They've taken away your options so that you will put money in the stock market, making these companies feel richer, making them hire employees, making the employees have an income so they spend money in the stores, which is a virtuous cycle. Now, Jeez. it's a great cycle as long as it's real, but it comes a little bit scary if it's artificial. And so an artificial cycle like we're in now that suddenly stops working because let's say commodity prices drop through the floor as they are, which takes money back out of the market the other direction, it can spin out of control. And so this is the danger we're in right now. And, and so the, coming back to dividends, if you were in the if you were right before the depression, you remember in, in 1929 the stock market was skyrocketing. Everyone was in the market. Everyone was leveraged in the market. You know, people that had no business being in the stock market had no idea about the stock market were putting money into it. Uh, because why? Because it had been going up like crazy for eight years. Okay, so now you end a cycle and it crashes, and then and then it gets worse for all kinds of international reasons. And because the Federal Reserve does pretty much the wrong things at exactly the wrong time and drives the country deeper into a depression. Well, our Federal Reserve has learned those lessons and it is from the depression and it's very aggressive about intervening. And now it's intervened so much, it's difficult for it to have an impact. Hmm. All right, so now we're kind of at that place. Now, in that environment, let's think what happens to dividend companies. So you've got, you know, let's say AT&T back in uh, 1929, the market crashes, it takes its stock price down like a brick, just like everybody else's, but it's still making money. People are- Is it still making the same amount no, of money? No, it's not making it's the making same amount. It's making a little bit less. Making less money, you know, it's not expanding as much as it was, making less money, or an oil company like Standard Oil, it's making less money because there's less going on in terms of energy, but it's not making no money. Mm -hmm. And since there's not a lot of reason to expand because there's nobody there to buy the new products, they may have excess money to, pr to put out to their shareholders in the form of a dividend. And that's what happened in the depression. A lot of blue chip companies um, just simply stopped spending money on expansion and started providing the money they would have spent on expansion out to their shareholders as a dividend. And as I said, there are a lot of people who made it through the depression because they owned AT&T stock. I mean, obviously you'd have to own a lot of it. 
which they may have done in 1929, right? They yeah. may have owned a lot of it. They yeah. didn't sell it because there was a big dividend coming in. And that dividend helped that family get through the depression. So dividends can be really fantastic if you're with the company that's doing okay um, through this big uh, train wreck we might be going through here in the next few years. And so how would you figure out what kind of company is the right kind of company? And the main thing to be looking for is really simple. You're looking for a company that has very low to zero debt because if they have to pay debt with less and less money, the debt doesn't go away. The debt service, the interest rate doesn't go away. Remember, that's all fixed. And this company has less and less money to pay that debt with. Debt can eat up all of the operating cash flow. Absolutely, very quickly. It very quickly can. Okay, so no debt or very little debt. Right. Anything else? Well, very. I mean, obviously, we have to go through all of our other standards, right? Yeah, we need to be capable company. of understanding. Yeah. We need to know that it has intrinsic characteristics that give it um, the ability to com to protect itself against competition, which is huge. This is, well, huge. Let me just say this real quick: huge in a recession, huge in a recession, to the benefit of that company. Because companies that don't have that, which try to compete with it in good times, are competing on the basis of price, and they often have debt. And that mm -hmm. combination of trying to compete on price when your margins aren't as high, plus debt, puts those companies into bankruptcy in a recession. Really quickly, I bet. And this company that's good picks up their customers. Oh, Thank that's you so very interesting, much. yeah. Yeah, so it's like a little recession-proof-ish. It's actually Story. crazily that it's during recessions that great companies expand. Hmm. So I'll take an example right now. The oil industry is going through a massive recession, right? Um, oil prices have gone from $100 down to $45 as we speak, which is a gigantic drop in prices. And so these companies that are very strong with very low debt, so we're looking at the big super majors like Exxon and Chevron and, and BP and uh, Total, Shell, these huge companies with, with controlled debt, those guys are going to be in a position to buy up the leases at pennies on the dollar from companies that are going into bankruptcy. Hmm. So powerful, big, solid, well-structured companies that have very low debt are gonna be the companies to own in that industry. That same thing applies to any company in a recession. And in fact, it's one of the things we look for for buying great companies, because we don't have a crystal ball. So we just go, look, let's just buy companies that don't have much debt. And by not much debt, we mean that they can take their earnings and pay off their debt in less than three years. And if we're getting nervous about the, that, the economy, we will even tighten that up. Okay. I mean, ideally, no debt. Anything else besides the debt um, yes. standard? Yes, the debt standard is really critical. And then the second, again, assuming this is a company with an intrinsic characteristic that gives it competitive uh, advantages, the second thing is that that company should have a lot of owner cash flow right now because that is what a lot of owner cash flow shows that this company has um, has the ability to operate without having to put money back into its business over and over again to sustain sales they have a cushion they got a big cushion and they've got a <clears throat> the structure of the business itself means that they don't have to constantly replace stuff hmm. what okay. do you mean well like let's say you're a car manufacturing company if you want new cars that are prettier than better than the old cars, 
they have to have new engine blocks, they have to have new frames, they have to have a different shape to the car. In other words, every two or three or four years, General Motors and Toyota have to retool their entire factory. For the new cars the that new they're cars. manufacturing. Okay, got it. So, so they need new equipment and they need to train their people. And Well, it's probably roughly the same equipment, right? It's just slightly. It's, it's amazing how not the same equipment it is. Cattle, uh, there's a real interesting story from GM um, about um, the design teams coming in with something for the new Cadillac. Okay. And with a brand new design. We're going to come out we're going to compete with Mercedes. It's going to be incredible. And they came out with this stunning design <laughs> based on nothing that they had in the factory. Okay. Just pure white paper, make it right. We're going to have an incredible American car. Right? And the executive shot it down and went for the car based on the frames and models that they already had, which is why GM didn't step well into the future. It just, it wasn't willing to spend that money. Because why? Because it would have had to cut its dividend, which would have chopped In its stock price. In order to pay price. for the new manufacturing yes, products. Yes, yes, Interesting. There you go. Yikes. So, so you can really see how a company's using its money. Well, I guess in hindsight, you can really see how a company's using its money. <laughs> <laughs> and you can in foresight. You just look at it. Does it have intrinsic characteristics that protect its profit margins, which allow it to pay dividends, and is it not chewing up all its operating cash flow with the purchase of property and equipment? Okay. That's what you look at. So you look okay. at operating cash flow on the, on the cash flow statement, and the next couple lines down, it'll say purchase of property and equipment. And if that purchase of property and equipment line doesn't have much in it, and the operating cash flow line has a lot in it, that's a company that's producing a lot of owner cash flow. Gosh, and that would be I what just, we want. I listen to all this is so like amazing, and I wish that there were a hundred companies like this, and I could just pick which one interests me the most, or which ten interests me the most. But I suspect that there are very few companies that meet all of these criteria. There are actually hundreds of companies that meet these criteria. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm dead serious. Hundreds. I don't even know what to say about that. Is that really true? Yeah. I mean, think about it. For a company, hundreds of public companies, for a company to arrive at a, as a public company, it has to have a great story or nobody will buy its stock. And fundamental to that great story is usually characteristics like we're talking about. We have very low debt. We have intrinsic characteristics that make us very competitive. We have our niche market. For, for companies, it's not so much about are you a great company? It's will you stay that way? Okay, so there are hundreds and hundreds of companies that are in the market right now that are producing a lot of operating cash flow. They have really good intrinsic characteristics that make them durable, but you've got to understand the business. You have to be capable of understanding that business to know that that's sustainable. That's a durable intrinsic characteristics. And they have to be, their price has to be on sale. And it has to be on sale. If Maybe you pay too much the for these things. Point. Maybe, okay, fine. I can believe that there are hundreds of companies that have very good numbers. Yeah. The, there are probably a lot fewer that are on sale. I can't even right? find one right now. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like really. But still, this is really like, it's, it's encouraging to know that there are a lot of options. They just don't technically exist right now. <laughs> and and I, I'll tell you, it's I like- I cannot go purchase them. <laughs> it's all about, I'll tell you something else Charlie said that's really important that when, that when it comes to this kind of a buy. 
looking for something that's gonna produce dividends in our retirement forever, a durable company, mm-hmm. wonderful business. Charlie said, you don't, find, you don't make your money on a company like that, like you don't get these kind of dividends when you buy it, and you don't get it when you sell it. You get it because you wait. So the idea is you're going to wait until one of these things comes along at a great price, and you're going to sit in cash and not do anything stupid until it does, because it will. The market fluctuates, and when it does, you're going to have a 100 great companies to choose from. But when it's fluctuating the other way, which is where it is right now, fluctuating way up, then you're going to have no companies to buy because you, you, if you pay that huge price, you're never going to get where you want to go. Okay, I see. I see. So the, the macro situation matters to us having a certain number of companies on sale and available to us. It does. And we don't really have to know that much about what the macro is doing. We just got to know what the value of the business is and make sure that the price of it is far below that. And when the macro is bad against us, what you're going to see is like what we see now, which is an awful lot of great companies and none of them are on sale. Gosh, okay. So well, it's a good time to be learning about it, it then, right? Because, yeah. no, seriously though, because I, it's going to take a bit of time to learn this stuff and I don't really want to be doing it and, and therefore not acting on it for a certain period of time until I feel comfortable. Well, it's a great time to be buying, so maybe this is a good time to be doing this because this is a, this is a really good time. It's apparently not a good time to be buying. It sounds like it is exactly right, and um, it's a good time to be waiting. And I would say let's hurry up and learn this because like I think practicing. the time to be coming to buy is coming soon. Interesting. Okay. Nice. All right. Cool. Thanks. So I think next time I'd like to start this series on um, and on what people are doing now with their money. What what I'm doing now which is nothing, and what people are asking me about with all these different options that are not choosing individual companies and buying and holding them in the roll one style. Good. Let's see what the alternatives look yeah, like. Yeah, let's see what the alternatives look all like. All right. Until then. Okay. Time to thanks, go play. everybody. See ya. Hey, you guys. Thanks for listening to Invested, the rule number one podcast. If you like us, please subscribe, please, and leave a review for us on iTunes. Uh, By the way, you can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and uh, also get more information about how to invest on your own by going to investedpodcast.com. By the way, everything, this is important, everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and it isn't to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for entertainment and education only. I got to tell you, I really hope you enjoyed it. And I know Danielle does too. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.